turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians. Today we'll be finishing up chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. As we finish this chapter today, we must call attention to a powerful literary device which the Apostle Paul uses to get the Corinthians' attention. That is, his six rhetorical questions that he spreads throughout the whole chapter. So first, just to make sure, what is a rhetorical question? It's a question that the readers or the listeners already know the answer to. In other words, each one of Paul's six rhetorical questions asks the Corinthians something which they should definitely already know. Well, then why ask a question when you know the people you're asking already know the answer? Because these people need to recognize that their behavior does not match what they know is true. Sin is so deceptive and so powerful that we easily become very adept at rationalizing what we know is wrong to make it fit our own agenda, what we really want to do. So what are Paul's six rhetorical questions? The first and second are in the second and third verse, verses of this chapter about suing one another in civil court instead of settling an issue amongst themselves. First one is, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And the second is, do you not know that we are to judge angels? In other words, Christians should be able to and should settle their own personal disputes among themselves because look what you're going to be doing in the future. The third rhetorical question is in verse 9, and it's about what behaviors or ways of living reflect a pagan life instead of a Christian life. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then there's a long list. The last three rhetorical questions in our passage today, all of which deal with sexual immorality are in verses 15, 16, and 19. And notice the progression of Paul's argument here. The, the fourth is in verse 15, which is actually the beginning of the text we'll be concentrating on today. And it's about a Christian's body being a member of Christ. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? The fifth question is in the next verse, verse 16. A sexually immoral Christian makes a member of Christ a member of a prostitute. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? And the last rhetorical question is in verse 19, which says, that a Christian's physical body is actually and really a temple of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Do you not know that your body 
is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. Now, what should grab our attention about this is that these people had already been taught all these truths. And this church hasn't been around that long. Five years, maybe a few more, and they already had all this teaching. In other words, what he's saying is you have to know the truth, yes, but you also have to obey it and apply it to your life. And last week, when we looked especially at verses 12 through 14, we saw how Paul did away with the unchristian idea that what someone does with their body doesn't really matter. Because, you know, it's only our soul or spiritual part that's eternal and matters. But in fact, what we do in our bodies does matter. Because the body, we read, is meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body, in verse 13. God created us to be body and soul together which is why our eternal hope in Christ includes the glorious resurrection of our bodies to be joined again with our souls. God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Verse 14. If you are able, would you please stand as I read again the last half of this chapter, starting in verse 12, even though we're going to be zeroing in on verse 15 through 20. But I'm going to read verse 12 through 20. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Yes, this is difficult to read. 
think how difficult it is to preach. But I'm going ahead. We've got to deal with this passage. There's probably no place in Scripture that is more applicable to what's going on in our own culture. And we need not just to understand this, but we need to deal with it. The main point that Paul is driving home to the Corinthian church is absolutely vital for every one of us who knows the Lord to know, apply, pray about, and figure out how to help people that are caught in these sins. And the main point is simply sex is not as casual as people make it out to be. Everyone must make or must take their bodies and what they do with them seriously. There should be a vast difference between a Christian's behavior in this realm and a non-Christian's behavior. And we need to explore the difference, this difference for a moment because Paul's already established that true freedom means being prudent and considering several important issues, which he wrote about specifically in verse 12 and verse 14. First, in the sexual realm, when we Christians think about what we should do or not do, and how we should behave, we should ask ourselves if it would be beneficial or profitable for us and others. That's what Paul meant when he said, not all things are beneficial. Remember the verse we looked at last week as well, 1 Peter 2.16. Peter writes, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. The second thing we should ask ourselves, whether what we're considering doing in this sexual realm could overpower and dominate us and affect others. It takes a lot of maturity to honestly ask ourselves this question. Why? Because we constantly overestimate our strength and ability to handle the relational and sexual urges within us and the thoughts thereof. No sin is more enslaving than sexual sin. And third, will this practice or action that we're considering support the truth that we've just read, that the body is for the Lord who created it and intended it to be used for his glory. Do I need to remind us that these questions and their answers need to be seriously worked out before we're actually in situations where powerful temptations can so easily overpower us? Why? Because they're powerful and we emotionally get so involved so quickly that the motor is running and we shift gears quickly. 
And are we ready to apply the next to last verse in this chapter? Which reads, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? In other words, whatever you're considering doing, Jesus Christ is there in your body in the person of the Holy Spirit. That's true for every believer. In marriage, this is beautiful. It's beautifully designed. has a beautiful purpose. But that's not true anywhere else. In verse 15, Paul asks, his fourth rhetorical question that we looked at earlier. And then he gives an additional application question that shows how detestable their, sexually immoral, their sexual immorality is. His fourth rhetorical question, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? And his additional application question Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? And we all swallow. Like, what? The Corinthians had no trouble getting Paul's point. Their city was filled with temple prostitutes, male and female. And it was common practice to think that union with such a prostitute meant union with that pagan deity who was represented. represented. The holy, the Christian united to Christ, was then physically linked to the unholy. Paul recoils in horror at the very thought of such a union between Christians and pagans, especially when prostitution is tied directly to false worship and idolatrous religion. Listen to the different renderings of Paul's answer to his additional application question in verse 15. The question again, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? The ESV says, that I read, never. The New American Standard says, may it never be. The Holman Christian Study Bible says, absolutely not. The King James says, God forbid. The New King James says, certainly not. If that doesn't get across the point, I don't know what does. You put all of those English renderings together, and that's what this answer is. Believers... Believers most certainly do represent Christ and what they do with their bodies. Then Paul presses the point even farther in verse 16 with his next rhetorical question and application from Genesis 2.24. The fifth rhetorical question is, Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? So to have sexual relations with someone is to be united to them in some sense beyond mere physical contact. Be it a temple prostitute or anyone else who is not your spouse. In other words, Paul 
is not limiting this picture to union with prostitutes. He's casting a lot bigger net and means to include all sexual immorality by Christians as being like and just as abhorrent as union with prostitutes. From Genesis 2.24, we read, the two will become one flesh. One commentator kind of summed this up this way. Paul is not claiming that every sexual union constitutes marriage. But he does suggest that sexual relations forge a profound relationship between two people. The notion that a sexual liaison is casual and insignificant runs completely counter to what is taught about sexual relationships in the Bible. We could sum that up by just making this simple. For a Christian, there is no such thing as casual sex. Now, the stark contrast to verse 16 is, in the, is then seen in the next verse, in verse 17. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. The word joined here is really interesting. It means glued, glued together. So we become united with the Lord through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, we can know and enjoy Him. Now, a lot of us have been blessed down through the years. We've had Lane Tipton come in for some ARF conferences, and he spent the majority of the time, couldn't get away from the doctrine, the theology of being united in Christ. So that one sentence explaining that doesn't do that justice at all. But there are... Um, communication devices available where you can study that more if you so desire. But it's the most beautiful thing to realize that here we are and we are actually united in our Savior. So having established the truth that our bodies do matter and that they're not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, as we read in verse 13, Paul now gives a direct command and then the emotional ramifications of sexual immorality. And this command is one of the shortest in the Bible, in verse 18. And it says, flee from sexual immorality. See anything else there? Flee. So the important thing to notice is that Paul does not command the Corinthians to resist sexual immorality. First, you've got to get out of there. First, they are commanded to flee from it. What's the best example in the Old Testament? Joseph and Potiphar's wife in Egypt. 
Genesis 39. I'll just read one verse. We don't need to get the whole story. Potiphar's wife caught Joseph by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. We must recognize that this command calls us to obey immediately. There is no time. There is no room for should I, shouldn't I. And these kind of intense temptations, the only response is to flee, which is what Paul recognizes and why he told these people to do that. Respond immediately, which requires us to be prudent and wise. Now, last week we looked at prudence. Do you remember what it means? Here's that definition again. The skill of enjoying Christian freedom while at the same time engaging in self-discipline and discretion based upon godly wisdom and spirit-enabled self-control. That is a great definition. The implication here is that we must learn to flee from sexual sin so that we can and will flee immediately. Fleeing sexual sin is a skill that we must be committed to. It starts with the knowledge and wisdom of what we've already looked at here, that sexual sin must be avoided at all costs. Because God knows how enslaving it can be. True freedom in Christ is being able to obey Him and glorify Him in our daily lives. And it takes self-discipline to not falter when we know we must flee. What happens when you falter? You fall. Very rarely, if you hesitate, will you all of a sudden have all the strength to resist. To not immediately do so means that we might be trying to play with sin a little bit. Thinking we'll be able to resist it. And that's exactly Paul's point. We underestimate the power inherent in sexual temptation. And honestly, we kind of enjoy the thrill of the possibilities. That's the danger. Spirit-enabled self-control is what turns us to immediately flee, which is God's provision. Now, there's a terrible irony here. In this kind of a situation, the person most likely to give in to sexual sin is the person who tries to resist sexual sin, that temptation and the heat of that moment. Why? Because they're overconfident in their own strength. Paul's imperative here, is it clear?
the vast majority of us could raise our hands and say, oh, yeah. Don't try to resist sexual immorality. Instead, first flee from it. Because sexual temptation is so difficult to resist. And many times it is time sensitive. So what does Paul mean by the second part of verse 18? Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. We need to come to grips with the fact that sexual sin affects us in a very profound way, which we've mentioned already. But Paul has explained that our bodies matter and matter so much that he says the body is meant for the Lord and that the Holy Spirit actually indwells the Christian's body. And he's going to explain that more in the next to the last verse. Our body and soul, let's look at the big picture. Our body and soul in this life are united. And at death, they are torn apart, which is one of the reasons why death is so horrid. Does it stop there? Does everybody stay a disembodied spirit? Absolutely not. For the Christian, our hope is that the body will be resurrected into a new resurrection body and be reunited with the soul, with Christ. That's how he created us, body and soul, together. And that's what will happen in that day. That is our great hope. Christians are not little ghosts flying around in heaven, singing music all the time in these silly pictures we see. Christians have resurrected bodies that those who saw the resurrected Christ something else. And that's a hope. Especially as we see our bodies racked with disease. Everybody's going to die of something. And to have that hope is a glorious hope. So in this life, Sexual sin deeply affects us as persons made up of body and soul. Another way to explain this is using the word intimacy. The intimacy with another person affects the body and soul. Not just the body. Body and soul. The intimacy of giving yourself to one who is not your spouse creates a joining of body and soul with another person that God never intended, which is why Paul says it's a sin against your own body. You've given a part of your personhood, who you really are as a person, to someone else who's not yours. Within marriage, this giving and joining again, is God's beautiful and blessed design. Outside of marriage, this depreciates your personhood. 
And how do we experience that? Being racked with guilt and shame. It's a sin against your own body, against the Lord whom you belong to and are united to, and against the other or any other involved person. Now we know the temptation of sexual immorality is very great especially in a sexually promiscuous culture such as ours, where we are literally continually bombarded with sexually explicit everything. It's not just what we see. But so are the consequences especially great. This does not mean that sexual sins are worse than other sins in the sense that sexual sins make us more guilty before God than other sins. Paul's point is that sexual sins carry with them a sense of guilt and shame that other sins do not. Because of the sense of guilt and shame... Sexual sins often, very often, most often, set in motion a cascading kind of series of consequences. And the list is a mile long. Divorce, pregnancy, health issues, apostasy, depression, self-destructive behavior. But you know, for the Christian especially, a not wanting to be reminded of what Christ has done for them sets in. Why? What happens? Many times those people just kind of disappear. What Paul's dealing with in this Corinthian church includes the horrifying disrespect towards God Almighty that has grown dramatically with this disobedience. That this whole city sees these people behaving exactly like they do, and yet they're claimed that they belong to the Lord. It doesn't make sense. They're right. It doesn't. Plus the way the Lord's reputation has been drunk through the mud in the eyes of non-Christians who've seen people professing Christ living no differently than they do. So then in verse 19, Paul asks his last rhetorical question. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You know how you go through this list and you go, oh, it's, this is negative. This is cutting too close to home. This is, yeah, the word of God does that to us, sharper than a two-edged sword dividing marrow. That's what it does. But look how he ends. This is what we need to remember. This is what we need to stand on. And here at the end of this passage, he again asks them a question that points them back to what they've already been taught. He says, your, your individual physical body belongs to the Lord. It serves as a residence of the Holy Spirit. And most of us have only ever thought of this as, ah, you get involved with so-and-so, Jesus does not only know, he's right there. There's a little more to it than that. So look at 
what he goes on to say. You are not your own. We are not the owners of our own bodies. How un-American can that sound? We hate this. Or we glory in it. And you need to ask which, there's not much room in the middle. You need to ask which one of those you really believe. For God created us, Jesus redeemed us, and the Holy Spirit makes his abode within us. The triune God claims ownership, but he leaves us free to consecrate and yield our physical bodies to him. And as we've seen, by contrast, those who commit sexual immorality desecrate the temple of the Holy Spirit and cause untold spiritual and physical damage to themselves and others. You know, people can get all hopped up about this Roman emperor went into the temple when they destroyed Jerusalem. How horrible was that? How could they do that? And that same person could be what? Desecrating his own temple. Because this is an individual word here. Because God owns our body, what does that make us? We are stewards of this body that he inhabits. And we must give an account to him because God's temple is holy and precious. Verse 20. You are not your own, verse 19 ended. You are not your own, for this is why. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now, to help us think about this a little bit more, I'm going to step back and point out something that you should see. Most of you maybe already have. Here in the last verse of chapter 6, we see another example of Paul telling us something that is true before he gives us a command to obey. In other words, he puts the indicative before the imperative. This is so vital for us to understand. When I first started coloring in my Bible to highlight things, what color did I use the most and what was it for? Every one of you who has marked your Bible probably has done this. Man, you look for the commands. And there, if you use colors, they're in red. If you use pencil, they're underlined. You probably poked holes in the paper, right? Uh, this is what I'm supposed to do because that's our first question. What, am I, what do you want me to do, God? What do you want me to do? Well, if you're only asking that question and you don't know what he's already done so that you could do what he tells you to do, you're in big trouble. Because then you're leaning on your own efforts to please him, and you think you're gaining merit to have his favor. And that's not the gospel, folks. That's a false gospel. So, what does he tell you is true before he gives you the imperative? This is how we're always supposed to obey, by basing what we do upon biblical truth. 
The reason we are to glorify God in our body is we have been bought with a price. And that changes the whole reason why we're doing what we're doing. And we just sang some incredible songs that were just filled with these truths right here. Do we understand what it means for you were bought with a price? If you paid attention to what you were singing, yes, you just heard it. But you know what? We need to look at this. The basic idea is that believers have been bought and freed from slavery of sin with the price of Christ's blood. And now they belong to God. Their bodies are under his lordship. Do you agree with that? We just had a beautiful example during Sunday school of going, I know I'm yours. How is this going to happen? That's perfect illustration. But you know what? There's also one. There's all over the place in the Bible. Now, you, while I'm stalling for time here, which one would you use right now to illustrate this? That is not actually Christ on the cross somewhere else. That's the ultimate one. That's what everything points to. Well, the Bible gives us Many examples of what this redemption means. But one of the most appropriate for this passage is about God telling one of his prophets named Hosea to marry a girl named Gomer, whom he knew would absolutely break his heart. There's a book in the Old Testament called Hosea. He was one of the last prophets because Israel was so immoral. Every way possible, including worshiping other gods. Not just what we've been talking about. They were all connected. And in reading this week, I found uh, one commentator who had a paragraph version of this story. And it's a lot better than I could write. So I'm going to read it, okay? So God told his prophet Hosea to marry this girl Gomer, whom he knew would absolutely break his heart. She was a girl with a spotty past and a fickle heart who would time and again spurn his love and seek solace in the arms of other lovers, plural. The story comes to a head when the woman finds herself on a bidding block, destitute with no other options to dig herself out of the debt she's incurred. She stands there on the block under the scrutinizing gaze of her bidders, 
awaiting the verdict that would decide her fate forever. In other words, she's up for sale. But as the auction begins, something strange happens. She hears faintly, yet unmistakably, a voice in her ears, five shekels. It's one she knows all too well, ten shekels. But why would he do this? Fifteen shekels. Sold. She's been bought by the man that she had spurned. The man whose heart she had broken time and time again. And as she's trying to make sense of what just happened, it suddenly dawns on her. And her heart sinks because she thinks there's only one reason why he'd do this. He'd have his revenge. So she lifts her head, bracing herself to get what's coming to her. But what comes next is perhaps the biggest surprise of all. Because she's greeted not by indignation, but by a kind smile and a warm embrace that seems to say, I love you more than you'll ever know. Let's go home. This story is a faint echo of the great drama that has animated our entire world and each of our lives. The one in which the great lover who despite, are you ready? Our spotty paths, our fickle hearts, whose love we spurned and whose heart we broke, didn't just bid to get the love of his life back, but gave all, body and soul, to have us as his own once more. And when we lift our heads and look at the cross, we know for sure that he's not out for revenge because we're greeted not by indignation, but by a kind smile and a warm embrace that says, I love you more than you'll ever know. Let's go home. You were bought with a price. You are not your own. But why would you want to be on your own? When the one who has bought you loves you like that. This has to be the most compelling reason to take our bodies and what we do with them seriously. Because we're bought by someone who gave all to have us. And that's how Paul ends this chapter. Now, do you remember what Paul told these people? Many of whom had been involved in every sin on this list earlier in chapter 6. Deeply. They'd come to Christ. And many were tempted to go back to their lifestyle. And what did he tell them? And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. And such are we, if you know the Lord.
Your sin is completely washed past, present, and future. Where you are now free to serve God with your body and soul. You have been sanctified, set apart for his purposes, first and foremost, not your own. And you have been justified. There is no condemnation for you before God. You've been reconciled to him through Christ. You either believe it or you don't. By the way, your resurrected body is made for the special purpose of living through eternity with the Lord who gave his life and bought you for himself. Yeah, we have many blessings in this life, and one of them is right now with one another. But we're here to prepare for sin. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we are humbled. We are recognizing that there is nothing in our hearts that you do not know that has not been revealed to you. And you still bought bought us with your son's blood. Thank you for your grace gift to us in Christ. Thank you for getting our attention through this very serious book. Lord, we want to grow in you. We know that we need to. We pray that you would continue in your work in us as individuals and as brothers and sisters in Christ. In him, you've given us everything we truly need. And we pray that we could grow in operating that way. Thank you for Christ Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand for our benediction? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of his Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. You are not technically dismissed. We hope you are dismissed, but stay. Go ahead.